title of the message this morning, The Kingdom of Heaven is Like. In my uh, annual read through the Bible this year, I've just completed the Gospel of Matthew this past week, and a phrase that perked my interest this year is that phrase, the kingdom of heaven, which is used 31 times in the Gospel of Matthew. Now, it perked my interest for a couple of reasons. First of all, because it was I just read through that, but also I'm doing a Bible study with uh, another six or seven couples online, and we've been studying Matthew, and then just got finished reading a book. Well, actually, I read it a long time ago, but it's called uh, Jesus, the Jewish Theologian, which sheds a lot of light in the book of Matthew, since especially to the Jewish brethren of Jesus' time. So, but, but as we get into this, there's lots of parables about the kingdom of heaven. In fact, 10 times Jesus says specifically, the kingdom of heaven is like. Then he goes and tells a parable. So I would challenge, it's a great Bible study to do. If you want to know what the kingdom of heaven is like, when he says that phrase, then look at the parable that Jesus tells and study those parables to get a really good idea of what, the king, what Jesus says about the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus didn't really give a dictionary definition of the kingdom of heaven, but he does tell his listeners what the kingdom of heaven is like through simple yet powerful parables. And although Jesus used simple word pictures to help his listeners understand the kingdom of heaven, the original meaning of the kingdom has been routinely, routinely misunderstood in modern times, I believe. So the teaching of Jesus concerning the kingdom of heaven is carefully portrayed in the message, in his message of his kingdom par- parables. And that message is being reexamined today among biblical scholars more than ever before. And in order to properly interpret the message uh, of Jesus' kingdom parables, we have to understand the original setting uh, that it took place in, in which they were spoken. So early, early Jewish sources provide uh, many insights into the original setting of the parables. In fact, unless we, I think, possess at least some understanding of the parabolic method of Jewish teachers, the message of the parables of Jesus can be lost in the numerous modern interpretations and analyses written from personal and theological bias. Uh, So there's basically a lot of views on the kingdom of heaven uh, among biblical scholars. I'm just going to hit three or four of them. Uh, One of them is one camp claims that the kingdom of heaven is an end time term. It refers only to the future day of judgment. And that's all I'll say about that. I got a list of all the scholars that preach that and teach that. Secondly, in a similar way, the dispensationalists claim that the kingdom will not appear until the millennium, which is a thousand-year reign at the conclusion of the church age. Then there's another group. It's called the Kingdom Now Movement that promotes the kingdom of heaven. But it says that God's people, by our own human efforts, will pave the way for the second coming of Christ. It's called the Kingdom Now Movement. And then popular thinking and popularly speaking, many Christians believe that the kingdom of heaven refers only uh, to life after death. They think that a person must die to enter the kingdom of heaven. One famous uh, evangelical New Testament scholar, his name is G.E. Ladd, taught that the kingdom is already, but not yet. It's among us, but it hasn't been fulfilled. God's reign will be fulfilled in the future, 
but remnants of his divine power are working in the present time. And I think this view is probably the closest to, to what Jesus taught about the kingdom of heaven. So in the parables of the mustard seed that Jesus taught, we're just going to look at two short parables this morning. Again, there are at least 10 parables about what the kingdom of heaven is like, but we're just going to look at, at two. In uh, these two parables of the mustard seed and the leaven, however, Jesus described the kingdom of heaven and the reign of God as a force in the present world which continuously and progressively grows and expands and gets bigger. Is the kingdom of heaven to be real, revealed only in the distant future? Are the people of God able to establish God's reign on earth by obtaining positions of leadership and power within our present political order? Is the kingdom experienced only at death? Is Jesus' teachings the kingdom of heaven? In Jesus' teachings, the kingdom of heaven is a powerful force in the world which brings healing and wholeness and salvation. So we're part of the kingdom. If you belong to Jesus, you're part of the kingdom. Not only the kingdom of the future, but the kingdom here and now. As we read the gospels, we discover that Jesus defines the kingdom of heaven from his present experience rather than from his view of end times. In fact, three times Matthew declares that in Jesus, in Jesus, the kingdom of heaven has come near. Now remember, he's, he's addressing his contemporaries. He's addressing his Jewish teachers and rabbis. He's, he's trying to correct their understanding of what is the kingdom of heaven because they were set in their ways of what they thought and they were set in their ways and who they thought should be part of that. So Jesus is addressing that. So the heaven has come near in Jesus. Matthew four sixteen. the people living in darkness has seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. From that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. The kingdom has come near in Jesus. And that word repent means change your way of thinking, change the direction of your lives. And that was the message he was trying to get across to his contemporaries and he wants us to understand also. And after Jesus ascended back to the right hand of the father, he expected his disciples to continue the kingdom work. So Jesus sent out the 12 disciples and he said to them in Matthew 10, seven and eight, as you go, proclaim this message. The kingdom of heaven has come near. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, drive out demons. Freely you have received, freely give. So Jesus used the word pictures to illustrate his message concerning the kingdom of heaven. What is the kingdom of heaven really like? And so the twin parables of the mustard seed and leaven illustrate the basis of Jesus' teaching here concerning the kingdom of heaven. They illustrate the progressive, continuous growth of the kingdom. Both parables uh, appear in Matthew 13 and Luke 13. Only one of them appear in Mark. So Matthew 13, 31, he told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his field. Though it is the smallest of all seeds, yet when it grows, it is the largest of garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds come and perch in its branches. He told them still another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and mixed in about 60 pounds of flour until it worked all through the dough. From the start, the supernatural aspect of this parable 
should not be overlooked. That tiny seed can grow, progressively grow into a tree was viewed as nothing less than miraculous. The same must have been true for the action of the leaven in the dough. Growth, this amazing, steady, continuous process would have been viewed as a true wonder in the eyes of the people. Jesus clearly teaches that a day of judgment and recompense is in God's future. Uh, It's in God's plan. But Jesus doesn't connect the theme of future judgment with the concept of the steady, continuous growth of God's reign. The kingdom has deeper implications. For us. In the land of Israel, the tiny mustard seed is about the size of a grain of salt. So that's pretty small. I mean, if you can picture that in your mind, it's the size of a grain of salt. And it grows into a respectably sized shrub. Birds are able to find rest on its branches. The mustard seed is also noted for its ability to take root in rocky, difficult to cultivate soil. The seed will grow in between the stones of a building or a rocky mountainside. Uh, The natural growth process of the plant and its roots will literally move huge stones as it grows. The simplicity of the parable helps in creating the deep and powerful mental image which the growth process of the tiny mustard seed conjures. Now the purpose of a parable, as you read through parables, it's not to give meaning to every detail of the story the parable gives an overall picture of reality and so as we read as we think as we study we we never try to allegorize every element of the image created by a parabolic teacher a parabolic story the parable is a type of story which compares one thing to another in the gospels they are specifically used to to compare some aspect of common everyday life to some reality of the kingdom of God. And Jesus uses them this way. The function of the parable was to challenge the worldview and the beliefs that people hold and live by. And so Jesus was challenging the beliefs of his contemporaries of his day. In the parables that Jesus told, he seems to be saying to his listeners, whatever you hope for, whatever you want, whatever you think you should have, The kingdom is not that. Jesus is challenging his contemporaries and us concerning our ideas about the kingdom of heaven. And clearly the message of the twin parables of uh, concern that we have read here talk about progressive, uninterrupted pattern of growth of the kingdom of heaven. Now, uh, Luke calls it the kingdom of God. We can refer to it as the reign of God. But Matthew specifically calls it the kingdom of heaven. The message of growth in the first parable is reinforced in the second parable, and Jesus depicts that process which anyone who's baked bread would be familiar with. The action of leaven entirely permeates that 60 pounds of flour. The process of fermentation and growth of the leaven is like the growth of the kingdom of heaven. Leaven, yeast, we call it yeast, is is a powerful force. You know, I was thinking, and I couldn't remember the name, have any, anybody ever, remember when you pass around starters that have yeast in it? You know, what? Sourdough. So it's got a starter and you take that starter, right? And you, you make some bread with it, some sourdough, but you save it. You save that starter so you can pass it on to somebody else so they can start something from it. And there's been different recipes like that go around in my lifetime. I can't, I've, I've eaten some of them, I'm sure, but I, I don't remember what they're called. I thought, what a beautiful picture. 
the kingdom of heaven, salvation enters into our lives. <laughs> that, that yeast, that continuous progressive growth of Christ's character in us. And then we take that and we pass it on to others. And then they take it and they pass it on to others. That, that starter bread. Modern interpreters have sometimes, I think, missed the message of the kingdom of heaven. It's not just about future age. Although there is a future tense to the kingdom of heaven. Beginning in Matthew 24, Mark, uh, he talk, Jesus talks about the end times and the judgment. Matthew 25, one says, at that time, the kingdom of heaven will be like 10 virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. And we know from that parable, 10 were prepared and 10 were not prepared for the bridegroom's return. So there is that future aspect. The kingdom is, is not heaven in the sense that someone has to die in order to enter it. I'm part of the kingdom now. And when I I die, I just go on to another phase. I go to a place we call heaven in the presence of of God, the presence of Jesus. The kingdom is not the church. Now that may surprise you. The kingdom is not the church nor a denomination, but the church is an expression of the kingdom of God. You see, God's reign has been going on forever, but in the day in which we live, we are part of the church. The church is an expression of the kingdom of God. Uh, The kingdom of heaven is not given over to human leaders for their custodial care. Uh, And I was reminded of what Jesus said. Since like like the church is an expression of the kingdom, Jesus said about the church, I will build the church. I will build the church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. Now think of my brothers and sisters in China in the underground church the more they're persecuted, the more it grows. Because Jesus said, what? I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. No political force shall prevail against it. No world leader will prevail against it because I'm the Lord of my church. That's kind of the, the fabric of the kingdom of heaven. He's telling us here because Jesus didn't view the kingdom. In fact, he fought against this idea. They had their ideas of what a Messiah should be like. We don't want a Messiah that's gonna die and suffer. We don't want a Messiah that's gonna forgive their enemies. We want a conquering Messiah. We want a Messiah that will overthrow the Roman government and establish the rule and reign of God's Jewish people. And they rejected. So Jesus And all through his parables, all through the Sermon on the Mount, all through the Beatitudes, all through Jesus' teaching, he did not view the kingdom as a political ideology or program. The kingdom is a process which cannot be imposed upon others through political activism, nor a political party, nor a political leader. God is the one in control of his kingdom. And he will, he has declared it will grow. Jesus said, The church, it's going to grow. The gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So the kingdom comes by God alone. It's a divine force in the world that brings healing to suffering humanity. And that's our job as the body of Christ, to do all we can to bring healing to suffering humanity. Healing that is experienced first within, just like that leaven in that starter bread, and then offered to others. Jesus didn't define the kingdom in terms of the future, but he did include what the kingdom of heaven would look like in the future. He viewed the reign of God from his experience in the present. In the mind of Jesus, the kingdom will continue because he taught his disciples to continue his work of making disciples and mending the world after 
he ascended back to the Father. For Jesus and his early followers and us, the kingdom of heaven is a strong force in our personal lives, which is experienced right now in this present age. According to the Gospels, Jesus teaches that the kingdom is, first of all, God's reign. The kingdom of heaven is God's reign among people who have chosen to obey God. Secondly, God's power. The kingdom of heaven is God's power as manifested in his redemptive purpose of healing and salvation. And thirdly, God's kingdom is the people who have become disciples of Jesus in the movement to bring God's redemption into our world. But you see, each individual must choose God's rule and accept his authority. God moves dramatically in supernatural and redemptive acts. For Jesus, the reign of God was manifested in his miracle working power as well as in the activities of his followers as they continue his work and put his teachings into practice and as he ascended back to the Father and then poured out his Holy Spirit upon us and the church came alive and was born and we continue that work. We must, though, choose his rule and accept his authority in our lives. The Sermon on the Mount, of course, in Matthew, verses chapters five through seven, revealed to us the nature, the character, the attitudes, the actions of those who accept Jesus' invitation to become citizens of the kingdom of heaven. Jesus taught that the poor in spirit make up the kingdom of heaven. Jesus' followers are those who mourn. They are meek. They they hunger and thirst for God's righteousness and long for his salvation. They're merciful. They're pure in heart. According to Jesus, the members of the kingdom are peacemakers. Jesus' followers turn the other cheek. They go the second mile. Now, just a a note of explanation here. In that culture, to turn the other cheek, to slap someone on the cheek was an insult to their pride. So that verse is, is basically telling us, it's instructing us to be humble, to be people of humility and people of service. Go the second mile. Turn the other cheek. Go the second mile. Uh, Our nature, our actions, our attitude should be that uh, one of of humility and one of servanthood. The greatest in the kingdom is the one who serves others and who is willing to suffer in the interim in order to see God's higher purposes achieved. Jesus believed that redemption was possible as each person submits to the divine will of God and accepts his yoke. He invites us. In fact, he said, my yoke is easy, my burden is light because we're yoked with Jesus. When someone who is hated by others loves in return, when someone who is persecuted learns to forgive from their heart, then the inner force of the kingdom is released as an outer force which impacts the world. And that kind of power is able to work the miracles of healing and redemption in our needy world. So Jesus taught about God's reign in parables. Jesus vividly illustrates through parables that progressive growth of the kingdom. He he teaches other things. I'm not going to teach them all this morning as you read through Matthew and look at those other phrases that said the kingdom of heaven is like. But in this one, he takes that mysterious power of the mustard seed and, and that fermenting properties of the leaven in the dough. God's kingdom is not delivered into the hands of select leaders in order to control the lives of other people. It cannot be viewed only as a future event reserved for judgment. The kingdom is a present reality for those people who choose to obey the teachings of Jesus, to accept God's redemptive power in their lives, and to exemplify the qualities of discipleship and servanthood 
in a hurting and needy world. The kingdom is here. Praise the Lord. Shall I hold my hand up? Praise the Lord. It is like a mustard seed that grows into a tree. It's like leaven that permeates the entire world. Then one other verse. Uh, in different terms, Peter says it a different way. And, and, and I think this text ties together what Jesus is saying about the kingdom of heaven and the joy that Pastor Pete has been preaching about uh, the past few weeks from the book of Philippians. So as I was reading uh, in, a, in a devotional guide that I have, I happened to be in Peter. So uh, this thought, well, man, that ties together what Jesus is saying and what Pastor Pete has been teaching us the last few weeks in Philippians. And it's from, it's from 1 Peter 1, 8 to 9. Uh, and it says, though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So as I read through this, I thought, okay, though you have not seen him, okay, that's me, check mark. Yes, true. You love him. Okay, I love you, Father. I love you, Jesus. Check, check mark. That's true. Even though you do not see him now, you believe in him. Amen. Check mark for me. And are filled with inexpressible and glorious joy. Hmm. I have to admit, I experienced a little bit of hesitation when I read that last one. I mean, come on. Inexpressible and glorious joy. That's a little over the top, isn't it? It'd be okay if I could do it once in a while, but I think God's will is I live like that all the time. Inexpressible and glorious joy, that joy that Philippians talks about, Pastor Pete's been preaching about. This is the common inheritance of every follower of Jesus, and yet I see it as quite uncommon, a quite uncommon reality. When is the last time you saw someone who was carrying an inexpressible and glorious joy and they, 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 they were showing it? When is the last time you, you felt that experience? And why is that? It comes down to the next verse. For you are receiving. Again, present tense, just like the kingdom of heaven is among us in Christ Jesus our Lord. You are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. In the present age, many Christians, at least in our Western world, I don't think have a biblical understanding of salvation. We tend to see salvation as something that has happened in the past, which will ensure something that is going to happen in the future. Okay, I'm going to go to heaven. Something happened in the past, so I get to go to heaven. Now, this understanding is not entirely wrong, of course. I think it's just sadly incomplete. So what is the biblical, the full biblical understanding of salvation? It parallels the concept of being part of the kingdom of heaven in the present tense. We have been saved. You've been saved? Amen. We are being saved. We will be saved. There's all three of those tenses when you read through God's word of salvation. We've been saved for the precious blood of Christ. When he invited us into his family as a child of God, we've been adopted, but we are being saved right in the midst of a fallen world. Christ is working his redemption. God is working his redemption, causing all things to work together for his good, our good, his glory. We will be saved when we not only will be delivered from the power of sin, but we're going to be delivered from the very presence of sin. And there you have the first and second and third halves. I know three doesn't equal halves, but you know, it sounds good. We got the first, second, and third half of the gospel. Many Christians only have a first half, third half understanding of the gospel. Salvation that was something that happened in their past when they walked down an aisle or they knelt 
at a mourner's bench or they got baptized or they raised their hand, they got saved. And they had, for the most part, a forensic, legal, uh, judicial understanding, grasp of the gospel. It was salvation as a transaction. And the first half of the gospel transaction guarantees then the, the third half of the gospel transition into heaven when they die. Salvation also is present tense. And salvation is future tense. But missing the link for many Christians is the notion of salvation as present and salvation as as an ongoing experience. In this present ongoing experience of being filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy, salvation in the past, you know, it inspires gratitude. I'm thankful for all that God has done through Christ. Aren't you? So salvation inspires gratitude. Salvation in the future inspires hope. It gives us something to live for. Gratitude and hope, great as they are, do not rise to that extraordinary level of inexpressible and glorious joy right now where I'm living. It is salvation in the present, in the midst of the vicissitudes of life that fills us with inexpressible and glorious joy. The text points us to salvation as a present and ongoing experience as the source of that inexpressible and glorious joy. Why? And are filled with inexpressible and glorious joy for you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Now notice he didn't say received, nor did he say will receive. He said you are receiving. It's why the second half of the gospel, I believe, is the linchpin to understanding the whole gospel. The end result of the initial transaction is actually being pulled back from the future into the present. It's the lived experience of thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The second half of the gospel is the right here, right now, supernaturally abiding presence of Jesus Christ in us. This is the mystery and the miracle mostly missing from the, from the life of an average Christian. No one has taught, I've run across a lot, they've not been taught or trained in the transformational realism of what it means to be continuously saved, to receive the sanctifying grace of Jesus rather than slavishly striving to change our behavior and manage our appearance. Salvation is just not forgiveness of sinful acts. Salvation is the healing of the sin disease. It's not only what God has done for us on the cross, but it's what God is doing in us through the presence of of his Holy Spirit. It is that constant, continuous, growing force of the kingdom of heaven in us. It's the sanctifying presence of Jesus in us that makes us more and more like him, even in in the midst of this fallen world. This is the second half of the gospel. Are you all in? Are you all in? Jesus is Savior. Jesus is Sanctifier. Jesus as master, Jesus as your king, as you live as citizens in the kingdom of heaven, Jesus as your teacher, Jesus as your rabbi, as he has making you into a disciple. Are you willing to disciple others? Are you all in?